Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR is produced on the lands of the Rundre people of the Kulin Nation. 3CR acknowledges that so-called Australia is a crime scene, that sovereignty was never ceded, and that we live and work on stolen land. We recognise Aboriginal elders, past, present and emerging, and stand in solidarity with those resisting the settler colonial state. is the specials with uh, Ghost Town and you're listening to Uprise Radio. Thank you for joining us again as we bring you another show. Unfortunately uh, for us, it may not all be, but for us we are in lockdown again, um, but that's okay. We get to still speak to you all and welcome Jackson and Mercedes. I hope you've had a good couple of weeks. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, things have changed pretty rapidly, but all going, going okay, all things considered. Yeah, it's been a strange week. Like it's really hard to keep track of time when the situation is changing so quickly. Um, you know, it's strange to think that last weekend, you know, people were going to events, you know, large events um, without masks. We were at work without masks on. Like it was incredible, that story from Bacchus Marsh Primary. The teacher who caught... Um, COVID-19 visiting a football game in the city came back and it was the first time Bacchus Marsh uh, Grammar, sorry, Bacchus Marsh Grammar had actually met with their full cohort of staff in 18 months. So for the first time in 18 months, they sat down all 300 staff and they happened to have, you know, someone infectious in their midst. It just kind of shows those sliding doors moments. Like if we had have still been in a, you know, more rigorous, even just masks at events and things, it seems like it would have uh, made a difference, but yeah, it's uh, you know back in back in lockdown. Here we are. I was very lucky to get a vaccine uh, last week, which was which was nice. And I realised I was suffering a little bit of vaccine hesitancy. My a friend at work really illuminated this to me when I was you know talking about my grievances, and and she was just like, "It's ridiculous. Just get out of the way of science. Do your bit." And I was like, "Yeah, well, mate, you're probably right." So that was nice. Well, it, was, it was only a week ago, um, Mercedes, we saw each other in real life. Um, we were able to stand around a fire and talk and have drinks and food. And we were, some people that we were hanging out with were already predicting that, you know, sort of half jokingly that 
you know, things can turn quickly and they turn very quickly. Well, we are going to be talking today about um, the Nicholas building in the city and, you know, another example of, you know, I guess it's, well, it's an example of lots of things of, you know, big business and gentrification. And I guess one of the things, you know, is we've kind of been chatting a little bit amongst ourselves kind of leading up to today is about how much the arts has kind of really left out and been left in the dark with the whole COVID situation for the past 18 months. And, you know, many, many people in the arts community have voiced these concerns from, you know, really big name artists to those who are just, you know, trying to get a gig or, doing whatever their art is themselves. Uh, and many of us, you know, I think perhaps all of us have kind of worked in some way in the arts uh, ourselves as well. So we're very much aware of the kind of topics and stuff around what's going on. But um, Says, did you want to introduce uh, our guests we've got on today and a bit about what this campaign is? Yeah, absolutely. So we'll be joined very shortly by Dari Vasurka. Um, of the Nicholas Building. So we'll be covering the Nicholas Building campaign uh, run by the, the Nicholas Building Association at the moment. Um, many of you listening are probably aware of the building that sits on the corner of Flinders Lane and Swanson Street. Um, it's incredible. I've spent a little bit of time in the building um, and you definitely get a sense for what an, an important and encompassing space it is. Um, when you're there. So a little bit of history before um, we introduced Dario, the Nicholas Building uh, was opened in 1926. And for what stood out most importantly for me about this building is that it emerged directly out of the upheaval of the First World War. Um, So Alfred and George Nicholas were pharmaceutical magnates um, who actually made all their money by producing aspirin for the Australian government during the First World War. Um, and so following the war, they contracted Harry Norris, who was an architect, to build the Nicholas Building. And that, to me, was a really, um, perhaps a really fitting time that we're now talking and this campaign is taking off and talking about coming out of a time of social upheaval or out of a time of crisis and what that, the legacy of this building, which has housed artists for decades, it's always been a place of coexistence for arts, creators, medicine, medicinal practitioners. It was really instrumental in the part of the rag trade in Flinders Lane up into the 60s uh, and, and still remains that today. And so I think what emerged for me when I was you know, reading about this building is that it seems as a somewhat a cultural panacea at a time emerging out of crisis. And so why it's important to um, make sure this building and the people in it are supported and maintained. So we're joined by Dario. G'day. Thanks Hi. for having me. Thanks for coming on the show. So I suppose we can just kick off by asking, you know, if you could give a little bit of a rundown about the campaign or what, what's happening with the building at the moment. Yeah, so uh, about a month and a bit ago, we um, got wind, there's wind in the, in the, in the, in the walls that uh, the building might go on the market. And I um, actually got a phone call and I was sitting at a fire at the time and uh, it was one of our tenants, he's a jeweller, he's been in the building forever. And he's like, Dario, um, I think the building's gonna be sold. And I was like, shit. Lo and behold, a few weeks later, um, it was revealed that actually it was the case that the building was gonna be put on the market. And what was so 
kind of difficult to kind of understand at the time was what the hell? Like, why didn't we even expect that this would happen? Like of all of the things that would pull us away from our practice in the building and, and stop us from actually being able to offer our cultural outputs and our practice deep in the heart of Melbourne, you know, of all the things that could really put a dead end to that is, is a purchase of a building like that from a developer or from a, a commercial investor or from a non-friendly um, operator. And, and so, you know, once we kind of swallowed that information, we realized that, you know, the work that we have been doing for the last kind of four or five years in the association to protect and preserve and nurture the community um, was now coming to a serious head, but that we actually had to hightail that and get it happening in about the two month period, which is where we're at right now. We're about a month away from the end of the EOY bid um, for the building to be purchased. And so basically our campaign um, is trying to position a new kind of story around actually what the building could be. So they're going to sell the building to the highest bidder. They can't tell the highest bidder what they're going to do with the tenants. And, and there's nothing in a commercial real estate agent's um, handbook that tells them you need to make sure that the creative community is secure and actually are able to elevate their offer in the city of Melbourne over the coming years. So we decided we needed to reposition that into the actual message, which was this is an existential risk to the most intensive vertical creative precinct in Melbourne at a scale which just doesn't, has, does, isn't anywhere else in the CBD. So there's something about that potency, which I fully believe in and the intensity that, you know, is what drives me to, to kind of do the work that I do there. What, what is it about that kind of like the centrality of and the concentration of the artists in the one building and the, you know, the city location you think that is really important to this, um, to the artists involved? So there's two parts to that. The first is, I guess, the, the notion of critical mass and, and, and what occurs when you cohabitate creative souls in a singular environment that has multiple nodes. I mean, what's glorious about the building is that it's a series of autonomous cells that are interconnected through the hallways and the, the, the common spaces like the cafe downstairs and the lifts, et cetera. The fact that you know there are 100 or 200 other people in the building at any one time all going for it in whatever way that is, like doing their creative practice is, of course, it's inspiring, but also it validates your own practice. And that's extremely important, I think, in the neoliberal you know, world that we live in, that your creative practice actually has a space where it can be and where it's, under, where it's appreciated by, by a community directly around you. To kind of go back to you know the question around what's important about you know the critical mass or the people in the building is that when you cohabitate people with that level of diversity of skill of 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 practice new opportunities arise when those people come together 
Can I ask Dario, what, what is the makeup like at the moment in the building? Because, you know, I'm interested in what you're saying about the various disciplines. I was talking to a, a friend of a friend who was a, a tenant there, and I heard from her about all the efforts that you've been doing to find rent for those tenants that are less secure than others during since COVID has hit. And, you know, there was a lot of pressure put on all different types of industries, I'm sure. But this friend uh, was a, an eyelash artist, which was, you know, something I hadn't thought about um, as a as an art form before, to, to, to be frank. And I, and I wonder, I guess when COVID hit, there was a lot of kind of pontificating about how the city would change and what impact the lack of foot traffic would have on city real estate. I remember talking to performing artists at the time that were really excited about rent becoming cheaper because of COVID, but it hasn't really seemed, uh, you know, in all spaces to play out that way. I wonder whether like the makeup of, say, uh, entry-level artists or, you know, beginning artists at the beginning of their practice as opposed to established artists, established small businesses, you know, art-adjacent businesses? What's the makeup in the building like at the moment? And, and the other part of the question is, why is the current owner selling now, you know, and, 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 and surely they have an interest perhaps in continuing the great legacy that the building has had for so long? So, sorry, it's a two-part question. Being in the city means that you are centrally located within inside the consciousness of the city that you live in. And you are then hence valued as an important member of the economy of that city. And artists, as we know, through gentrification over the last decades, are increasingly dispersed to the margins where it's almost impossible for you to find your collaborators because you have to travel miles to get somewhere to have that conversation, which within you're in the city, you can just find each other when you're walking around the halls or walking down the street and having a cup of coffee and bumping into each other. And to me, the city has changed drastically in the last decade in regards to its capacity to do that. There's a, there's a real lack of the affordable studio spaces now in the CBD, and including a lack of artist-run galleries in the CBD. There's only one left, which is Blindside, which is in the Nicholas building. And that, Gallery supports thousands, has supported thousands of artists over the over the 16 to 18 year period. Sorry. One of the things that the Nicholas Building has is a, is a, is a large amount of contemporary art spaces. So it actually has eight galleries, of which all are very distinct in how in the offer that they, they make to their artists and also to their clientele. Um, now, up next to that are definitely crazy um, spaces, like you just mentioned, the eyelash studio, you know, just the fact that it was there made me go, yes, that is valid, right? That's a real thing that somebody does. She's passionate about that. She wants to make this her, her life and her career. And so, you know, this is a place that can allow her to do that because she has an affordable space. One of the things that we're trying to do through this campaign into the future is to not only protect the space with a covenant forever for creatives in the city, but to actually make the spaces even more affordable but would the yeah, covenant yeah, have like yeah. rent capping? Is that something that you're like? I, I suppose like yes, you know, you're, you're right. I understand what you're saying about you know getting on the front foot in how this place is marketed. Like I understand it sounds from like what you're saying that the seller, you know, who you may or may not have a, have knowledge of or a relationship with, I, I don't know. Like it is just it's it's interesting to me when I when I look at your proposal that you know you're saying that you know this this incredible institution is up is up for sale, and the thing that's incredible about this institution is it is, is that it's housed people who, you know, perhaps wouldn't otherwise be able to be in the city. And we're not sure whether the new, whether the new owner will have that same vision that has been carried out. 
you know, when I think of the vision of Sally Cap for what Melbourne, you know, should be in the future, I'm not sure that aligns with the type of, you know, creative spaces um, that, that we're saying, we, you know, we want to protect. <laughs> it, it, it can. There's politicking and then there's politicking, right? You know, like if there's the right people talking to her and presenting it in the right way, then you end up in a situation where we are at the moment. Yeah. So she's right behind what we're doing. But what is it that you're propo- how are you proposing value. to protect the artist, I suppose, is what I'm asking. I'm going to get there in a second, but I want to try and answer your other question from before about why do the owners want to sell now? Mm. That's the $80 million question. But apparently, you know, it's not really worth $80 million. That's really another bit of marketing, right? So there's not one owner. There's five, and they're a consortium. And that consortium is made up of five families. These are the same mob that own Block Arcade and brought in the same real estate agents that um, mismanaged Block Arcade to then mismanage our the Nicholas building, i.e. they tried to rent hike everybody in our building and that's when we formed to fight back against it, right? And they, so they didn't succeed. They did succeed at Block Arcade and they had an evacuation of about 80% of the studios, right, for the first time in decades in the Block Arcade. Um, I would say that one of the reasons they're selling is because COVID's, COVID's tough, and because they believe that right now they can position the selling of that building or the purchase of that building in relation to the metro project and the uh, uh, foot traffic that's going to be going through there in the next six to eight years. And so they probably are looking at that being the thing that investors will work towards. They might, they're pitching it as a boutique hotel, ultimately, right? If you look at their prospectus and one of the families in that group is a benevolent philanthropist. And, and they have been doing soft philanthropy with the Nicholas Building for a very long time. Back to the Sally Cap thing and, you know, uh, how you argue balance against... Well, how you balance the interests of the people that you're asking for money. Mm. They're going to want a return on that money, yeah. you know, in the way that they think the people with money. And I just I wonder if there's any other way to approach this that could empower the people that inhabit the building more so than you know, kind of being reliant on that continued benevolence of those, or is, or is this kind of, I, yeah, I'm just. Yeah, yeah, good. It's a very good question. And I think that, you know, um, when we get to the point of having town hall-y meetings about it, you should come and share your ideas because this is exactly the kind of thing that needs to happen. Because when you're uh, a bunch of creatives in a building without money and you're trying to argue against a commercial imperative, you need to argue it not only in regards to what it does for the cultural vitality and, you know, the soul of Melbourne, you can't really fight $80 million with that, right? You know, you can't fight a return on investment with the soul. You can and you can't. There needs to be a certain amount of um, social enterprise logic which is used back against the commercial argument in that you go, actually, you know what? If we get a covenant on this building, and we make sure that 80 to 90% of the rooms are secure for as affordable creative studios, maybe 10% of the space is turned over to a social enterprise model, which makes money that is then subsidised back into the building. That would be a pretty good split, Dario, if you got 90, 10. And it's possible, like, you know, because one of the aspects of it is the building has a rooftop, it also has a basement. So... You know, those things aren't utilised as creative spaces at the moment. 
our our vision is to kind of create the ideal um, ecology, which does both, right? It is actually creative and artist and tenant driven in its vision and in its capacity, but it actually does develop and move towards a model where you can actually have a, a return on investment, not just a social return on investment. And so there's financial and then there's cultural economies. There's like um, financial uh, re re returns and then there's cultural economy return. And that, that value is significant for politics. And it's especially significant maybe on a state level right now because we're looking at a COVID recovery and the policies are all about, you know, having creative-led recoveries out of COVID. You can't do that if you kick the creatives out and you just bureaucratise it. Um, uh, and given the budget that just came out in May from the state government, even states in itself, that, you know, to uh, cement the reputation as the nation's creative capital. So how do you do right. that by removing yeah. the soul? Yeah, yeah, you can't do that. And a part of the thing is action number 13 um, in, in the creative state policy says something very specific, similar to uh, retain um, incubation and affordable studios in central Melbourne. Like literally, like what we're talking about is one of their actions. But, you know, these developments, like such as the Queen Victoria market kind of situation, Fisherman's Bend, like all these major scale infrastructural projects take years for councils to turn into, uh, you know, actual uh, projects that benefit the community, right? And where, as in, it takes them that long to even contemplate, you know, that something needs to happen, how much is it going to cost? And they go through years and years and years of laborious processes. We're forcing them to do that in, in a two and a half month period. And, and what's interesting about that is that if it wasn't for the existential risk, we wouldn't actually probably be in the rooms right now talking to these people. So, you know, it's, it's not as if state government can't afford it, right? They can borrow money. It's about whether they have the political will to do it. Like the amount that is outgoing is nowhere near what's incoming in rent. So if you had the capacity to borrow $80 million to buy the building as an investment, it's actually a worthwhile investment. Is it like if you're setting up something, you know, to be a hub for artists? I mean, I yeah. assume that's setting it up with, you know, some kind of guarantee. I mean, obviously not, it's no, you know, ironclad guarantee, but, you know, with the idea of preserving it as for artist spaces. So I would assume you wouldn't want to have as part of that a model that says, oh, you could just sell it again because we're going to provide more um, capital to do that. I mean, all of these buildings in the city must be worth, I mean, I'm sure millions and millions, but, you know, the building itself is heritage listed. So that it is limited in what can, it's not as though they can knock it down and build uh, you know, a new apartment block. It would have to be within the confines of, you know, the existing kind of structure there. But I guess, you know, like even just to go back to the, um, not to wed, um, not, it's not all Sally's fault. I think, you know, the, the whole council though, you know, I'd actually, I'd argue they have a shocking reputation for supporting the arts at all. Um, you know, we only have, Jackson and I spoke to, um, you know, some of the people who run Sticky Institute not that long ago, uh, where they try to, you know, knock down all that part of, which is also heritage listed, um, you know, of the Campbell Arcade and okay. the graves as part of the, um, you know, building the new 
city loop there. And, you know, we don't have to go back to, you know, the protests, uh, the way that the uh, Melbourne City Council handled protests as well. You know, I think that it's a, the government's, I, I appreciate what you're saying about trying to, you know, speak to the right people and to speak the language of politicians. But I think, you know, we see time and again that they, they do speak dollars. And I guess that's why, you know, that's part of your campaign as well as trying to sell the cultural impact and the, you know, show that there is an economic output as well for housing these artists there. So, Gary, what you were talking about, um, the soul of the city in terms of, and I suppose we kind of did lead into a conversation about talking about cultural capital and value and all of those things, but I suppose mm. um, I I think that in terms of, yes, that's, that's a necessary way to frame it in terms of the for campaign, but I suppose I want to bring a question back to what is it about the connection of that place? Because as we know, cultural value or, you know, whatever we want to call it, for want of a better term, um, capital is probably the furthest, most uh, appropriate term to talk about what actually emerges from these spaces. And I think it's so much more than that. Um, so I just coming back to, so what is it about the connection to the place? Because, you know, we see schoolhouse studios opening up um, potentially or in, in Coburg, um, creating these new spaces, which is really awesome. But, you know, I want to know what is it about the building that fosters this soul or, you know, keeps the fire in this soul alive? There's a history and a legacy in that building, which is uh, unmatched, I think, um, in, in Melbourne, at least. I was listening to a uh, program about Chelsea Hotel the other day and um, the struggle that they've got at Chelsea to, to save Chelsea. Yeah. And it's a very similar fight, actually. And um uh, who Patty Smith was like, you know, did a bunch of poetry about it. And I was closing my eyes listening to it. And I was like, you could literally think she's talking about walking around the Nicholas building in regards to the architecture, right? It's something about the architecture that nine levels, over 110 rooms, all of them are very specific. When you open them up, you have no idea what you're going to walk into until you do. And then you can have your eyes really opened. And you'll go back outside and it's just these yellow nicotine stained walls, you know, and cables hanging down and, you know, there's this kind of otherworldly kind of, you know, Z-grade business uh, building about it, right? Which is why it's, it's very attractive. It's why it's still attractive for teenagers when they come into the city to try and get to the rooftop, which is what I did when I was a teenager. And then you still see them doing that to this day. Um, there's something about it. I don't know. You know, be, I don't know what the significance, the history, pre-colonial significance of that site is either. But that is something which we're working towards in our in our program at the moment, in trying to kind of really properly open out to uh, a First Nations dialogue and going, actually, we're going to do this, right? We're really seriously going to do this. We can't do this without you. And to understand what this site actually is, especially if we're talking about going to the top and going underneath the building as well. I think it's probably a lot of our listeners can relate to. It's a feeling, perhaps you know, at the Victorian Trades Hall building, um, you know, which carries a deep significance for a lot of activists and you know, trade unionists and people that has been a building where you can also you know walk into a room and and see different meetings of campaigns and political groups and you know it holds a history that i think what you're saying dario it's really hard to put into words what that kind of means and and you know of course 3cr itself as a building um in on smith street which you know itself was um 
huge apartments built next door and were offered uh, a lot of money to knock it down. But the fact that it is in a central location, that means that um, presenters, producers, volunteers can come from all over Melbourne and, you know, and all over the state to a central location that's close to public transport that people can easily get to to produce uh, community radio. I think uh, by the saying you don't know how to explain it, I think you explained it perfectly is a feeling that I think a lot of us and a lot of listeners can really relate to. And the relationships so. that are connected across different temporal spaces in, in these buildings as well. I think, you know, if you're, if you're able to become in a conversation with someone in a building or, you know, in the past, then you can also have that conversation with people in the future, or, you know, in a sort of weird way. You know, I think there's kind of, if, if it exists across these temporal spaces simultaneously, you feel that in these places like Nicholas Building, like Trades Hall and like 3CR, that you're always yeah. in a constant dialogue with these things. The Nicholas Building self-determined what it is. It's organic. It grew from the ground up. It's it's driven by itself, you know, and that is Melbourne. That is its identity. And there's something very unique about that that needs to be supported. And, and that's what we want to create a covenant for and around. And there are so many models in Melbourne, going to what you were saying before, Mercedes, you know, is, isn't about capital. It's about something else. It's about community. Have the belief that it is actually important that we remain, retain cultural vitality in the centre of Melbourne. Because if we don't, we go to what you said before, Jackson, which is the suits and the glass. It's repetition. And you have to import your arts and culture in to show it at your recital centres and at your festivals instead of actually growing it from inside of the city. Um, and there's an opportunity to have that conversation, right? There's an opportunity to push that agenda and to actually try and shift the, the, the value framework around so the philosophy of community and social engagement, relationality and the temporal relationships that you guys were talking about before actually have weight. Thanks so much, Dario, for joining us. So we're talking about the Nicholas Building campaign today on Uprise Radio. You can go to nicholasbuilding.org.au to support the campaign and keep up to date with what's happening. Uh, and we'll also post the links on our Facebook page. This has been Uprise Radio from Community Radio 3C. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.